Hello and welcome to For and Against, where we look at the big issues in sport off the field of play. It's Paul Roach with you here, and as I always am, I'm joined by a couple of very good friends and colleagues. First of all, Simon Johnson. G'day, Jono. G'day, Roachie. How are you? I'm excellent, thank you, mate. And also Stephen Riley coming in from Melbourne. G'day, Riles. I'm not going to waste any time with these greetings. Not tonight. Okay. Ahead in the show, we'll mark 30 years since the introduction of the back pass rule in football. And consider how far it and other sports have come in that time in quickening up their uh, product, inverted commas. In the shootout, we'll look to the cover of the final evolution of EA Sports's F- uh, sorry, FIFA title and also look at the development of sports gambling as an asset class. Get that into your self-managed super fund. Obviously, we'll, we will conclude with another exciting edition of Red Card, Yellow Card, where the misdemeanors of sports players and occasionally administrators are rested off the PR people trying to put a lid on them and thrust them back in the spotlight here on For and Against. You can get us on social media, on Twitter, at For and Against, with a little underscore there, and on Insta, for.and.against. Uh, if you're old school like us, there's a Hotmail address as well, forandagainst at hotmail.com. Doesn't seem to be getting a lot of cut through, the really email address. You keep persisting, Marochi. I not, love it. One day I'm going to get an email. Yeah, come on, Mum, send me an email. Uh, rightio, enough of that. Let's get into the show. It's hard to believe, for those of us who can remember the change, I, us old blokes, that it's been 30 years since FIFA, in one of its few good moves, arguably, banned the picking up of the ball by the goalkeeper when his or her own player had passed it back to them. It was, once upon a time, quite the time-wasting technique, Jono. Really was, yeah. I mean, I saw this as well, 30 years, I can't believe it is, yeah. but I think it was, what, the Italy World Cup 1990, where it all went bad in, in a big way, but yeah. What, what a fantastic rule change it was. Steve, I know you love your sporting administrators. Uh, you give some credit to FIFA for this one? Yeah, I'm afraid I'm going to have to. But I'm going to say it was 30 years ago. Everyone was like younger, you know. They just needed... <laughs> yeah, this was a good rule change. A good rule change. But we will disagree. For those, of, those people listening... Waiting for the for and the against stage team. Exactly. Well, we need to bring in an expert clearly to dissect this issue properly. And uh, so joining us now to that effect to discuss the nuances of this landmark decision and perhaps other similar examples across the world of sport is our very own David Gill, enticed out of his for and against sabbatical bear. How are you? Great to have you back. I am wonderful. Thanks, Rachel. And so glad to be part of the slick machine that is for and against once again. Welcome back, bear. <laughs> Um, Bear, look, can you give us a bit of historical context as to how this rule change came about and perhaps what it took to actually get the level of agreement that presumably would have been necessary to to make this change? Yeah, so there's a reason nobody can remember what soccer was like before this rule change. That's because when you're watching soccer from 30 years ago, the only thing that you see are the highlights of the games. And believe it or not, players constantly passing the ball back to the goalkeeper (laughs) who then picked it up and held it for 30 seconds doesn't make too many highlight reels. <laughs> so it sort of, it, it, it was always a bit of a problem. Uh, late 80s, as negativity and money came into European football, it started to get a little bit out of hand. Uh, there was a 1987 Cup Winners' Cup game where the Scottish midfielder, Graham Soonis, playing for Rangers, found himself about 20 metres from the opposition's goal um, with the fairly good opportunity to take a shot at goal. Um he decided to turn around and belt the ball backwards 70 metres back to his goalkeeper, <laughs> which didn't look great on TV. Then there was the 1990 World Cup, um, which Simon mentioned, and things were deteriorating further. And one game there, uh, the Ireland goalkeeper, Pat Bonner, held the ball for a total of six minutes 
Oh. So almost 10% of the game was Pat Bonner holding onto the ball. Fantastic viewing for the uh, millions of people <laughs> watching around the world. And it actually it reached its nadir in 1992, European um, Championships. And Denmark had snuck into that competition because Yugoslavia had, were, were late withdrawals and Denmark kind of got this free ride into the tournament. And in an amazing fairy tale, won the entire tournament, beat France, the Netherlands and Germany mm. along the way. They also passed the ball back to their goalkeeper, Peter Schmeichel, about 5,000 times during the <laughs> tournament. And if you go and look at this on YouTube, there are ridiculous moments. Back passes from the centre circle, little little back passes. Goalkeeper gets the ball, rolls the ball two metres to a defender. Defender passes the ball back to Schmeichel. Schmeichel holds onto the ball for 15 seconds. Jürgen Klinsmann looking very angry in the background. The rule was changed very quickly um, after that tournament. Rushed through. Uh, and suddenly goalkeepers had to learn how to use their feet, which uh, led to another catalogue of uh, very humorous <laughs> moments and also some great YouTube videos of things going horribly wrong for goalkeepers. There's the short history of the back pass rule. Thank you. I, I love it. I love it, Ben. Um, I have a quick quick quiz question for you, Dave. What was the last back pass oh. in top-level English football? And you might have Jeez. to play the percentages here to try and figure out who it would okay, be. So uh, you could... Logic, you could work. You could logic your way through this. You're saying EPL. So it'd be the 1990. It would be the 1992 FA Cup. 1991 yes, FA yes, Cup well was, was uh, Spurs against Nottingham Forest. 1992 FA Cup. Jeez, uh, wasn't Man United. He's, I don't down. Was. He's not going to make it. I was sure he could uh, do this. Quiet, Riles. I want to hear um, the workings. It's like a steel trap, that mind, isn't it? No, I, I haven't got it. Oh, FA Cup nineteen ninety two. That's as good as I can get. Uh, I'll tell you, the losing team was Sunderland. If that helps. Now, can you think who? Sunderland. More hints, oh, Ross. Sunderland, I really should remember. Yeah, what what colour was the winning team wearing? They were red. Lots of red. Got to be Liverpool. Liverpool. Yeah, he so, probably blocked it out because yeah, Liverpool so won Liverpool. the FA Cup that that year. Now, now you can guess, you know, playing percentages, who the back pass was from and to. Ian Rush to Grobbler. Yeah, somebody to, to Bruce right. Grobbler. Um, oh, Barnes. Graham Sernus again. No. Uh, who was it, Rush? Steve was Nickel. It? Thank Steve God. Nickel. Steve Nickel. Steve Nickel. Yeah, look, I think it was still worth it. I, mean, I don't know if that was scintillating radio for everybody, but uh, but it was it was fun listening to Dave's mind at work there. That was good. and seeing his hands rub up and down as his brain ticked yeah, over. Yeah, that was not very great impressive. podcasting, but for us the visual was really good. John, I think you had a question to further I, the conversation. I really did indeed, Rachi. Um, but thanks for thanks for that, Riles. Um I mean, you touched on this, Dave, uh, in relation to the skills of the goalkeepers, and I hadn't fully appreciated this, but it, I um, I had a quick look as well. And and you mentioned some amusing YouTube footage. I guess, I mean, this was a completely new skill, wasn't it, that goalkeepers had to learn very quickly. You would have goalkeepers who really all they could do was save goals or have that big right boot to boot the ball out with a goal kick. But, you know, in this situation with back passes, if they were coming back to them and they couldn't pick it up, they had to use their non-dominant foot. And it would lead to absolute debacles on the field. So, did that, you know, have a major impact on the role of the goalkeeper going forward? Yeah, absolutely. And I think a, uh, a good example is Australia's Mark Bosnich, who had actually had two stints at, at Manchester United. One was 1988 to 1991. So before the rule change, and at that time, Sir Alex was a, a massive fan of Bosnich. He then came back 
to United in 1999 to replace Peter Schmeichel, which is always going to be a, a tough act to follow. But he he really struggled with that transition. And Ferguson was was a manager who really wanted his goalkeeper to be able to play quickly with his feet. And it's not easy in England. You're playing on slick surfaces. The defenders are pinging the ball back to you really hard and fast, and it's going to be skimming off that surface. You've got to be you've got to have a lot of skill and 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 great balance. And that was kind of where Bosnich failed in his in his second stint as Man United goalkeeper, and it led him on a dark trail um, <laughs> towards all kinds of doom and misery. And red card, and yellow so, card. Exactly. Probably not a huge fan of the back pass change, Mark um, Bosnich. Steve, have you got a, a burning question there? I can see your brain cogitating as well, just coming up with something brilliant. Well, I, to be honest, I, I was thinking of, of going off uh, going off from uh, football into other rule changes that have, have got rid of time wasting, but I, I feel like there's more to explore here. It strikes me that uh, there have been some horrible bloopers for goalkeepers who have just done, they've gone for the, the back heel, they've tried to take on the, the, the first defender and failed. You know, any particular examples of that that really stick in your mind for people who thought they had it and didn't try it again afterwards? Uh, there was a great example um, of Simon Tracy of Sheffield Wednesday in the 1992-1993 Premier League season. And he was then in a, a long list of goalkeepers that season who, for a horrible moment, forgot the rule change. So bent over to pick the ball up. Then at the last moment realised that he couldn't. He was under pressure from a defender. He somehow managed to kind of recover himself, beat the defender, but uh, sorry, beat the attacker. But another opposition player was running in towards the ball. So he kind of had to He ended up booting the ball over the side blind, but he was in such a panic that he then ran over to the ball boy, tried to steal the ball from the ball boy. And then when the ball boy threw it to one of the attacking players, he actually rugby style tackled the player taking the throwing and got a red card. So that didn't go so well for Simon Tracy of Sheffield Wednesday. Simon Tracy of Sheffield Wednesday, stick that in your Google. Look, Steve, I might take your lead and, and move on to um, other examples and perhaps a discussion rather than necessarily a Q&A here, Bear, feel free to chime in. But um the uh, locally, one of the not that long ago rule changes in Aussie rules, it's about sort of six or seven years ago, uh, was about around the rush behinds because uh, I forget the specifics of the game, but there was one particular game that sort of accentuated the ridiculousness of being able to, as a defender, getting the ball back after a behind had happened. If you were leading by enough but needed to wind down the clock, you could just turn around and walk back over the goal line and concede another point. And then you had another 30 seconds to play with and so on and so forth. So I'm, I'm not sure the game, but that's been in place for six or seven years. Clearly a time-wasting thing chucked out the window. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you mentioned time-wasting. That is the motivation, isn't it, for a lot of these rule changes? It's Surely. all about, impro- you mentioned it in the intro, improving the product, making um, the game more attractive to viewers. It's interesting to look at a bit of the history of when this came about. And historically, you know, it was with the advent of TV, some of these changes. So if you look over in the U.S., in basketball, they introduced a shot clock um, in the NBA in 1954, hmm. and that was apparently I didn't realise this, but after you know, in the couple of years leading up to that, it, it was horribly defensive basketball. So there was a, a very famous game between the Fort Wayne Pistons and the Minneapolis Lakers in 1950, which resulted in a 1918 slugfest. Wow! It was the lowest scoring <laughs> game apparently in many many a year. So they've obviously changed the rules there with TV coming in, just to ensure that there was um, you know a better product. Fort Worth, Fort Worth Pistons were a bit weak that year, though. 
I, I heard that too, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And the six tackle limit in rugby league. And, you know, another example, it used to be, you know, such a horrible war of attrition, rugby league, apparently, back in the day. You look at those old highlights and it was, you know, like World War One. they were just inching their way forward. <laughs> there was no, you know, limited tackles. They apparently initially introduced a four tackle rule and then they realised that that didn't work as well and so changed it to a, a six tackle rule, I think, from 1971. So made it much more free-flowing and appealing to spectators. Before the yeah, rule Paul, Paul I there, just want to go, Dave. I just, was there a record of the number of tackles taken in a rugby league game before before possession changed? There's a good question. There, there's got to be. You mm. can you imagine just moving you know, half a metre upfield with every tackle, just ridiculous. Charge. For question I noticed, there, there must be someone on Twitter who's um, you know, a stats guru who can answer that one. Uh, Steve-O? Well, I'll try and find it for you in a second because uh, I was too busy trying to just uh, remind myself what were what was the game that changed the rush behind rule and you know there's two that spring to mind from the 2008 season one was well Richmond and Essendon Richmond had a couple of rush behinds which they used to wind down the clock when they won a game by about four points I think it was but in the grand final Hawthorne rushed 11 behinds against Geelong that year. Now, obviously, that had no bearing Hmm. whatsoever on the result and was not time-wasting at all. It was just great defence. But, uh, yeah, they changed the rules straight after that. That was 2008, that grand final? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Okay. I thought you were going to come up with tennis, Steve-O, because I know you're a bit of a tennis aficionado, and I presume the tie break also falls into this category? Yeah, it does. The tiebreak does, but I'll tell you what, the 25-second serve rule does even more. Sure. Because they used to take, you know, a gazillion years of time-wasting, just especially when they were losing. They took forever to serve. Yeah, tiebreaker came in apparently in the 1970s, and it initially was only brought in, I think, in one or two of the Grand Slams before it became obviously more generally accepted. And then the far more recent phenomenon that we'd be obviously aware of is that change to the fifth set tiebreaker in Grand Slams, because I think back in... Don't two, like it, but anyway. Well, back in, what, was it 2010, John Isner had that ridiculous Wimbledon match, which I think it was 70-68 in the fifth set, a match that went over three days, you know, the, the longest Grand Slam match of all time, which can't happen anymore. A bit of a shame in some respects. Just a bit, yeah. Um, but yeah, so now it's, I think, first to 10 in the fifth set tiebreaker. There's um, there's a good one, though. Dave, you'd love this one. It's a bit of an obscure one, if, if you will indulge me. A big change to the rules in table tennis. Oh, I'm not sure if you're aware. Oh. Dave's a big table tennis mm. aficionado. In fact, we've all you know had a few games of ping pong at, at Gilly's at Dave's place house. in the garage. Yep. But in 2015, I'm not sure if you're you're Ooh. all aware of this. The ITTF changed the size of <laughs> ping pong balls. Oh. So previously, 38 millimeter balls were used. <laughs> But they were, in fact, increased to 40 millimetre size. Why would that be? Because it increased the ball's air resistance and slowed Slowed down the game. And this was done on purpose because Ah. the game was becoming impossible to watch both live and on TV. It was too fast. A bit like uh, ice hockey. You can't see the puck. Yeah. But it it actually meant that some some players were kicked out of the game because they were relying on, you know, a big serve and they were no longer – their advantage was diminished. That little two mil made all the difference. Steve, were you gagging to get in there? No, look, I just think we're conflating some rule changes that are stopping time wasting from rule changes that were to improve, you know, television broadcasting schedules. Oh, when the the table tennis rule, that's a that's a gem, Simon. It was worth it to hear it, even if it has absolutely nothing to do with any of the above. Often a bit so, of a bit of attention. So well played. So I think the final question in this discussion needs to be. 
what the hell is rugby doing to speed up their game, for goodness sake? Because I tell you what, there's not a lot of action in that 80 minutes these days. Not a lot of action. If you want to bet your life on something, it's that a scrum is going to be reset in rugby. They're not doing anything, are they? Yeah, it's funny we haven't mentioned them, and not surprisingly so. They need to be listening to this podcast and and change the rules for the good of the game and for the spectator. I hear they do. Well, what what do they have to do? Brains trust right now, listening to the show. I have it on good authority that the Australian Rugby Union has been directed to us for all of our incredibly good criticism of how they've just strangled the grassroots. How do they change the rules again? I'd like to start. First of all, <laughs> start, they, they've got to stop the clock when the ball. They've got to stop the clock when the ball goes out of play. Now that sounds like something to make the game go longer, but actually, then what they have to do is say, "Well, the game only goes for sixty minutes, or it only goes for fifty minutes," mm. and they play the actual time on the field. Yeah, if you stop the clock yeah, when I the ball's that's, out, you, you, that's going to be a long, long game. Sorry, Gilly. I think that's a good suggestion, and I think um, football is thinking about going the same way. So rather than the traditional 45-minute half, they're talking about 30 minutes of in-play in football. And the one that kills football these days is the substitutions in the last 10, 10 minutes mm. of a, of a mm. cup final. Real, Real Madrid did it wonderfully well against Liverpool in, in this year's Champions League, um, wasting about half of the last 10 minutes of the game, which wasn't great viewing unless you're a Real Madrid fan. Stop the clock. It's a pretty simple formula. I've said this before on this uh, show, and I'm sure I'll say it again, but when you record a, a game of Aussie Rules or Rugby League uh, on the on the, the Fox thingo or whatever your, your choice is, as compared to when you save a game on uh, the Rugby Union or you watch on delay, as the case may be, Geez, you can rattle through a game of rugby pretty quickly, but yeah, you can't. Thirty minutes. Yeah, exactly. But Aussie rules and rugby league doesn't stop pretty much. You just you can't afford to fast forward through it. You'll you'll miss it. Uh, is that enough offloading of the brains? Brains trust their eyes. We we delivered rugby everything it needs. No, one more. I have one more, and it's it's akin to the kicking tee. You remember the uproar when they stopped, you know, having a ball kid run out with a bucket full Sand of dirt mm. so that someone could take a shot at goal. And they brought out the, the not romantic at all, uh, kicking tee. Well, this is similar to that. The kicking tee worked out just fine. I think everyone can agree with that. It's one of the great steps forward in rugby union in, uh, in the last few decades. Why don't they bring out the scrum machine? Ooh. You know, the one that they train with, it's mm. the scrum machine on wheels. You just put it on the scrums have to be to the side of the, the, the ground. It gets the forwards out of the play. It has an actual, <laughs> you know, pushing contest. And you know when they after the the scrum is taken, the ball's got to go into the field to play, and they wheel that sucker off. Because <laughs> that won't take any time at all. <clears throat> and the props uh, are not on the field otherwise; they just are on the scrum machine the whole time. That's their one and only role. Bit- <laughs> Starting to sound like NFL here. Wouldn't hurt. Specialised teams. Uh, all right, Dave. Listen, we better let you get. So I was just going to say, all around the world, I hear the hearts of props and hookers breaking. <laughs> Uh, yeah, Dave, look, we better let you get back to your sabbatical. Hope we didn't interrupt you too much uh, and the football playing and coaching is going well. Look forward to having you back on the show at some stage uh, at some time in the future. Good on you, Gilly. Thanks, guys. David Gill there joining us uh, on For and Against once again. We'll be back with the shootout in just a sec. On to the shootout now. Uh, we cover a few items in quicker fashion and a little bit of history will be made with the upcoming release of FIFA 23. Not only is it the last title under the lucrative tie-in that EA Sports has had with FIFA, which we covered on the show a couple of months ago, I think it might have been, but a female player has graced, or will grace, I should say, the cover of the game for the first time. And it's none other than Australia's Sam Kerr, resplendent in her Chelsea kit. 
what a superstar she is and what a couple of years she's had. Obviously, Chelsea been fantastic for Chelsea, great for um, the Australian national team as well. Uh, it's her and French superstar, is it Kylian Mbappé? Mbappé, yeah, that'll do me. Kylian yep. Mbappé. But yeah, great news, I thought. It was brilliant. So I think, I think it's important for us to recognise just how big a deal this is. So Mbappe is the most exciting player in the world right now. If you go back over the last, uh, what, 20, 30 years, though, it has been a, a roll call of the greatest players in the world of all time. You know, Ronaldo, Messi, these are all players who, are, you know, you might have had a few English players in there for a period of time in the 90s, like uh, John Barnes. But uh, Bergkamp, I remember being in one year. They're, these are the best of the best that get that moment, that recognition being on the cover of the FIFA game. And now it's Sam Kerr. It's a victory for women's football. And, oh, my goodness, what an honour for an Australian footballer to be the first woman on the cover. Mm. We salute you, Sam Kerr. It's a great little moment in uh, Aussie sports uh, recognition. Uh, look, I like to joke uh, that having a punt is a perfectly legitimate short-term high-risk investment opportunity. But how about if you could actually include a bet on the GGs or the dish lickers in your super fund? Yes, folks, sports gambling is looking like it could be an asset class. Well, you know, it might be. A study in the UK by a couple of quant researchers, basically people that crunch numbers to try and work out how to invest slash beat the market, reckons they could do it. They recreated a horse racing betting strategy between 2010 and 2016, which they their strategy was basically to lay off the top four horses. And so not bet on the, the favourites. for those that aren't as uh, into the punt as some other people might be, uh, just avoiding backing the favourites. So you're going to lose a few, but I'm guessing the idea is when you win, you, you win reasonably healthily. And so crunch the numbers they did, and apparently across that six years, the strategy outperformed the Credit Suisse Hedge Fund Index in five out of six years. And uh, the S&P 500, a more standard index, in three of those six years. John, I know superannuation really excites you. Can you see yourself getting involved here? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that, that, I should have asked you an open question there. steve what about yourself, mate? I have just one thing to say, and that is nothing on this show in any way resembles financial advice. <laughs> there is absolutely nothing. In fact, I'm not even sure that, that anything here is actually factual in nature. But, yeah, that, that reporting was, and please do not consider following any of this without any regard to your personal circumstances. Oh, my gosh. He's not afraid of chucking in a general disclaimer yeah, whenever, we, right. whenever we talk money, is he? People sign waivers, don't they, before they listen to us? I think so. Yeah, there's yeah. some sort of general agreement. Well, it's something to do with the appeal of this particular potential potential investor asset class, Ross. So it's not even real. People can't actually go out and invest in this. It's just theoretical. But it's the lack of correlation to regular investment markets, John, as I'm sure you probably thought right. that would be the case. I see. Because, you know, it's no good the stock market goes down. What are you going to invest in to get good returns? Well, you're going to have a punt on the GGs at um, an angle or something right. like that. The trot's pretty straightforward. Never thought we'd get superannuation into this show. Well done. <laughs> Where there's a will, there's a way, Jono. Where there's a will, there's a way. Uh, look, from the It's Not Sport But We Like It file, obstacle course swimming. Obstacle course swimming. Uh, as you're listening to this, I want to paint you a picture. Imagine eight people on the marks at a swimming pool. The lanes before them get set. And in they go and swim, swim, swim. And they come up to a, I don't know, big inflatable tube they have to climb over. Swim, swim, swim. There's some sort of wall they have to really climb over or go around or a raft that they have to straddle. And and so they, they have a race that's, you know, it's got obstacles in it. I think it's a terrific, terrific idea. 
I was amazed, although I must say not surprised, to learn that this has actually been going on for the better part of a decade. This YouTube stuff goes back to you know at least a decade or so. But then I learned that obstacle course swimming has actually a much longer history than that, mm. to the extent that it was an event in the 1900 Olympics. A bit before inflatables, they had boats and poles and stuff. The Paris Olympics. The Paris Olympics could get. So not only that, but Australia is actually the current Olympic champion in obstacle course swimming. <laughs> Thanks to A, Aussie Frederick Lane winning the 200-metre obstacle swimming event, having also taken out the non-obstructed 200 metres swimming, uh, and B, the event as I say, uh, or the event never having been part of the Olympics since. Wow, undefeated champion. Which is wrong, I say. It needs to be back in the Olympics. This is an Olympic sport. Now, was this in a pool? Was it in the River Seine? Or where, oh. where was Fred swimming? It, the, the little brief photos I saw on the side of the article suggested it might have been in the river. I think that's right. The real deal. Wow. So what, scrambling over boats, swimming under boats? Yeah, well, yeah both. Yeah. I like it. Maybe fighting some seaweed. I don't know. Uh, I think the scope here is enormous. It- no, Paul, am I hearing you right? Are you actually suggesting that Ninja Warrior should become <laughs> a uh, an Olympic sport? Is that yeah. what I just heard you say? No, I think that – I think that, let me just spell it out. Um, no, it was uh-huh. obstacle uh-huh. course swimming. Yeah, obstacle uh-huh. course swimming. There are some yeah. obvious parallels there, Riles. I was thinking exactly the same. Well, they've obviously pinched the concept of obstacle uh-huh. course swimming. So there's a fork. Obstacle course swimming exists and there's a fork. One fork goes to Ninja Warriors, whatever it's called, and the other fork goes to the Olympics. I love it. You're a traditionalist. You're a traditionalist when it comes to obstacle course swimming. Absolutely. 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 I think the, the scope there is enormous. I don't think it's been fully explored. I think you could have, you know, deadly predators and animals that could, you know, maybe cause a bit of damage. Maybe not deadly. That's probably going a bit too far. Maybe that's what they do in that ninja thing you talked about. Well, it's only been 122 years, so let's get it back. Yeah. Well, look, Brisbane Olympics, here we come. On to red card, yellow card, where, yes, we enjoy uh, poking fun at sporting types who have erred off the field of play. And, yeah, we dish out a yellow card or a red card, depending on the severity of their crime. Uh, Riles, what have you got for us, mate? So I am putting up the Belgian cyclist Yves Lampert, who has got himself in a bit of a huff because competing in the Tour de France this year, there's been a great big crash. Now, as you know, some people, not me, Watch sport for the crashes, but the tour de, when a when a Tour de France peloton goes down, it, it does. It's it, it, it stays chaos down. Looms that the, 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 the it stays down. Well, anyway, that's what happened during the race this year when a little puppy on petit chien, oh, cool. um, <laughs> you know, drifted out across in front of the track, and of course one went down and they all went down. Anyway, young Eves said it's outrageous. Where is it? Yeah, we've seen this happen in the dog in the before in the tour, and it's not funny when it happens to you. I wasn't a dog lover before, and this certainly hasn't helped. <laughs> oh my goodness! That you just you might as well go back to a velodrome. You might want to just put yourself in a little wind tunnel. Yeah, the whole point of the Tour de France is getting uh, out in amongst it on the cobbled streets and dodging pets. It's a little bit like your obstacle course swimming, I say. How's the petite chien? Did it did it make it? Do we know? And where's the um, concern? Is the dog getting a, the card or is the cyclist getting the card? I'm a bit confused. No, no, the cyclist is getting the, the card. And I'm just looking at the news articles that covered this. There were, there were a few. <laughs> uh, and it does, it does not report it on the health of the public. We'll have to report back Outrageous. next show. Yellow card to the press. Yeah. Okay. So I think you were trying to give the cyclist Eve uh, a yellow card. Okay. Yes. Glad we clarified that. Yes. Jono. Um, yellow well, jersey, yellow card. Uh, good, good call. Uh, 
I'm going golf, Reggie. So you, fancy that. Yeah, fancy that. You would have recalled, obviously, last month Cameron Smith won the British Open. I, yes. You yes, might I'm have seen, seen some reference to that. Yeah, yeah. Well, now I love Cam Smith. I love Australians doing well in golf, as you know. But I'm a bit concerned about Cam's behaviour after winning the British Open. Excellent. So this nomination what? this nomination relates to his treatment of one of the most famous trophies in world sport, the oh. Claret Jug. Oh, come on. So Cam is a knockabout character, famous for his love of beer and fishing. He's a Queenslander. Um, Queenslander. Immediately after his victory, he was seen in the scoring hut. I'm not sure if you saw this, but he, he was drinking a beer. So I think five minutes after he'd finished and the rest of the players had finished, so it had been confirmed that McElroy couldn't get, catch up to him. He's downing a beer. Then at his press conference, someone said to him, how many beers are you going to have? And he said, I think I'll have about 20 claret jugs worth of beers. <laughs> and so the next day, of course, someone said to, to Cam, well, how many beers does the claret jug contain? And he answered pretty quickly, almost exactly two. And some footage has emerged. Is that all? Yeah, only two with oh, the claret okay. jug. Quite right. a small trophy. Um, some footage emerged of Cam with his mates sculling from the famous claret jug Cam with his shirt off making cocktails. Um, and as proud as I am of Cam's form here, I really am quite proud of it. I think, unfortunately, decorum must prevail. Oh. And I'm nominating him from a yellow for his poor you treatment of the claret jug. Duffy old golf oh, fan. No way. Go back to your wood oh panel golf club. Sorry, Sorry Cam. You. Sorry, Cam. <laughs> <laughs> Rubbish. Cam, you just keep, keep doing what you're doing, mate. Don't worry about Jono. Bernie Eccleston, he's getting on a bit, so he can't have too much more to give, but the 91-year-old with a net worth of around £2.5 billion has been charged with fraud following an investigation by HMRC, Her Majesty's Revenue and Custom, I think it's something custom, something like that, the UK taxation body. It relates to his failure to declare the existence of assets held overseas to believe to be worth in excess of £400 million. Mm. It follows a quote-unquote complex and worldwide criminal investigation uh, and obviously relates to projected tax liabilities arising or avoided, as the case may be. Now, before you say anything, fellas, Simon York, the director of HMRC's Fraud Investigation Service, ended this announcement by saying, we remind people to refrain from commentary or sharing of information that could prejudice proceedings in any way. So I'm not too sure how much we can say, um, but Eggleston has had a bit of red card, yellow card form in the not too really recent has, past. Yeah, and you might recall he brushed away a bribery trial in Germany by paying £60 million in 2014 without admitting guilt. And uh, also recently, he also made the uh, red card, yellow card long list, but didn't actually make the final, following his arrest a couple of months ago in Brazil for carrying a handgun in his luggage on a plane. Teflon Bernie. I reckon, I reckon. So, um, yeah, for the, the fraud charges, obviously, uh, you know, what was his name? Simon? Someone, some bloke uh, would rather we didn't comment. Simon York, there he is. But it's got to be yellow there for, for Bernie. They're stacking up. We'll be watching very closely to see how the investigation progresses. I hope he lives through it. And with the end of Red Card, Yellow Card, brings us to the end of another edition of For and Against. So it's goodbye to you, Simon Johnson. See you, Richie. Goodbye to you, Stephen Riley. Well, I'm going to take my time here. I'm going to waste as much time <laughs> as possibly can. Let the clock slowly turn Ooh, over. Yeah. See you, gentlemen. Have a lovely day. We haven't reached our contractual uh, time allotment. Uh, don't forget, you can get us on the socials at For and Against underscore on Twitter and on Insta for dot and dot against but until next time in a couple of weeks time it's goodbye from me Paul Roach bye for now